So curious, have you ever been accused of something? Ever been accused of something? Yeah, one day when I was in the fourth grade, my teacher had to go to the main office to pick something up. And she needed someone to help her carry whatever it was back to the office. Not sure what it was, but, but me, being the strongest lad in my class, she asked me to go and, and help her carry it back. Now, actually, I, I wasn't that strong. I wasn't fat, though. That, that didn't happen until the sixth grade. Anywho, so that day we're walking down to the office, but before we did, she gave an assignment to everybody in the room. And everybody in the room was supposed to read quietly at their desk. That was what they were supposed to do. And to ensure that everyone would read quietly at their desk, she tapped somebody to take names of anyone who was not cooperating, and those names were supposed to be put on the chalkboard. So we were gone for, I don't know, five or ten minutes, came back, came back in the room. There were some names on the chalkboard of folks who had misbehaved and were doing the wrong thing. And guess whose name was on the chalkboard? Yeah, mine. Yeah. Now look, I might have stolen my Uncle Max's toupee and glued it to my face when I was Moses in the school play, but I was not in that room that day. I was not misbehaving because I was not there. It was all a conspiracy. So, what do you do when you are accused of something? Well, legal advice says that when you're accused of something, be careful how you react. You want to be sure that you're not quick to to show anger or to be defensive or to lose it. You want to show some self-control. In other words, you don't want to be like the guy that I read about in one scenario that somebody said to him, you know what, it looks like you're starting to get a mouth. You should have a doctor check on that. And the guy shouted back, I do not have a mouth. Yeah. You don't want to be too quick in your response. But what if it's not an accusation? Is there something that can help you think, see, Consider, act, speak, text, post, react, and respond when there is an accusation or an aggravation or a frustration or a depression or a confusion. Is there something that can help your heart and your mind and your soul when you are having to interact with acts of injustice? with medical statistics, with executive orders, when you're having to interact with conspiracy theories, or you're having to interact with family arguments, or you're having to interact with a shortage of toilet paper. Is there something that can help in moments like that? Well, there is. There's something that can help. And what is it? Well, let's see if we can find out together. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Apostle Paul is writing to folks around 60 AD. In the late 50s, life was pretty good, relatively normal and peaceful for them in Rome. But, but in the mid-60s, things got a little more difficult, especially for Christians. Nero became emperor And Nero accused the Christians of just about anything he could possibly 
find to accuse him of. Things got tough and, and things got hard. But, but that's why this letter was going to be really helpful for them. This letter from Paul was going to help them. They were going to be able to prepare for the kind of pain and hurt and difficulty and hardship, even the kinds of death that they were about to face. And so how? How was this letter going to help? How did Paul help them prepare? Well, this is what he did. He, he asked questions to engage them. And then once they were engaged, he'd give them the answer. So the question here is, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can bring a, a charge against God's chosen ones? Who can bring a charge against Christians? Well, anyone and everyone can bring a charge and an accusation at any time. Yeah, at, at any time. Someone might accuse you of, of hoarding toilet paper. Somebody might accuse you of not social distancing. Somebody might accuse you of opening too soon. And somebody else might accuse you of not opening soon enough. Somebody might accuse you of, of cheating on your taxes, or you might be accused of cheating at Scrabble. You might be accused of liking boy bands from the 90s. Or you might be accused of saying that Miracle Whip is mayonnaise. Bless you, we, we love you, but, it, but it's, it's not. Okay. Anyone and everyone could bring an accusation or a charge against you. And some of those accusations will stick, right? Some of them will be true. But hopefully, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, hopefully those accusations won't go too much deeper than cheating at Scrabble. Paul was writing some folks in the place called Galatia, and he gave them kind of a broad list of, of things that mark a person that's really super proud of their sin. Someone who's always fighting to get their way. These are the, the kinds of things that you would see in that person's life. These are all from Galatians 5, just a, a handful of things from the list that he gave. Immorality, idolatry, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, divisive attitudes, drunkenness, wild parties, and Paul said, and things like this. Now again, if you're a believer, hopefully these are not the things that consistently can be accused of in, in your life. If, if so, then you might need to evaluate whether your profession of faith is truly a possession of faith. But practically speaking, if Paul is saying that anybody can bring an accusation against you for anything, where is he going with this question in terms of helping anyone? Well, what Paul's trying to do is point us to the highest court in the land. He's trying to direct our attention to the highest accuser, the greatest enemy in your life. And the greatest enemy in your life is Satan, the devil. Now, I know, somebody's thinking, are you kidding me? Really? Satan? You're, you're saying you believe in, in Satan? You're saying you believe in, in, in the devil? You're, you believe in some you know, red dude with horns and a, and a thorny tail? A late justice of the United States Supreme Court was being interviewed once, and the discussion was on the problem of evil. 
and, and the justice spoke about their belief in the devil. And they said this to the interviewer, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or I have believed in the devil. But you might say, I don't like justice anyway. They're either too liberal or too conservative. I just don't like them and I still don't believe in the devil. Okay, maybe let's take it from another angle. Do you believe in any of the following things? Pride, greed, jealousy, violence, or injustice? Do you believe in those things? And if so, then how do you explain how those things get stirred up? Too much caffeine? Too many video games? Maybe too much talk radio? Or maybe there's too many twists in the genetic code of a person? Well, the Bible speaks to the problem of evil and and how those things are stirred up in its description of the character and the nature of Satan. The Bible describes Satan as someone who tempts people to sin. He causes people to be blind to the truth. He takes people captive to fear. And he attacks people's faith. And and that's just a few mild descriptions of what we see. Jesus not only believed in Satan, but consistently spoke about Satan and his evil agents and his evil kingdom. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We would plead with you, don't believe either of those errors. Don't, don't run to either one of those errors. But that you would affirm the existence of the one who is known as the prince of the power of the air. The one who hates you, hates your kids, hates your spouse, hates your family, hates your friends, hates everyone in the world and desires that your soul would never find true lasting We plead with you to affirm his existence. Jesus did. And if we take this and and look at that, we see that, that he is the greatest enemy of your life and he is the greatest accuser of your life. And then we take that and we put it in this greater than, less than argument. And and suddenly we, we have a bit of an answer, right? We have an answer of the the greater than or less than because if you were confident that the greatest accuser in your life, the greatest enemy in your life had no real legitimate power or authority over your life, don't you think that would help you with your lesser accusers? If you had a a get-out-of-jail-free card, Don't you think that would help you when the president of the homeowners association accuses you of breaking the regulations because you planted flying duck orchids in your front yard instead of monkey face orchids in your front yard? 
Don't you think that get out of jail free card would, would help you to, to not be afraid, so to speak, of the lesser if the greater has been cared for? The difference, though, is Paul's not talking about orchids, is he? Paul's talking about your greatest enemy, and he's talking about the people of God, and he's talking about the kingdom of God. Listen to the question again. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? I love it. Paul says, all right, come on. Come on in here. Here's the question. Who can bring a charge against you? And then he gives the answer. God is the one who justifies. Paul must have watched a lot of Matlock, a lot of law and order, because, man, he's, he's got nothing but courtroom language in everything that he's saying. And, and here's the picture of what he's painting. The glory of God is the most perfect standard in the universe. It's the highest and most perfect standard in the universe. And all of us fall short of that standard. All of us. None of us measure up to that standard. None of us are perfect. And because we fall short of the glory of God, the highest court in the universe rightly accuses and condemns us as sinners. But being justified means the highest judge in the universe, God, does something. It's a a stunning turn of events. God removes the condemnation and declares a person not guilty. That's what it means to be justified by God. And a person is justified. You cannot justify yourself. You can't be the judge and be on trial at the exact same time. Only God can change your sentence. And how does he do that? Well, he does it by grace. He does it by grace. And his grace moves to do something amazing because here's the thing. Because he's the highest judge in the universe, he owes me nothing. He owes you nothing. He's the highest judge and we are condemned sinners. He owes us nothing, but he desires, he delights to do something for you, to give something to you. And what is that? He desires to give you a not guilty. That's what he desires to do. You can't throw money at the court You can't come up with a a sweet sob story to try to sway the judge. You can't reduce your sentence by doing community service. There is no way, absolutely no way, that you can earn a not guilty. A not guilty is a gift by the grace of God to you. Undeserved, unearned. But smart people would say, hey, wait a minute. Ain't nothing free in life. And you're right. There is a a cost. But the court cost has been paid. In fact, it is a ransom that has been paid. And who paid the ransom? Christ Jesus paid the ransom. And, And how did he pay the ransom? He paid it through the propitiation of his own blood. Whoa, hang on, preacher. 
<laughs> I'm having a Zoom at school right now, so dial back the big words, okay? So what is perpetuation? Well, perpetuation in the simplest terms, it means satisfied. Satisfied. It means a payment has been satisfied. But here's what's unique. It's a payment that's been satisfied not by the person who owes it, but by someone else. And that someone else is Jesus. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the payment for our sin. Jesus was our propitiation. He stepped in. He was the only perfect substitute that can satisfy the penalty of my sin and your sin. And here's the thing about propitiation. There is no sequel. There's not a lethal weapon four starring Jesus. There's no sequel to this. Jesus, when He died on the cross, when He sacrificed Himself for our sin, He completely and ultimately and perfectly and finally and eternally dealt with the wrath of God. He satisfied the wrath of God. He satisfied the penalty of sin. The old hymn puts it this way, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, all. So if God has justified a person through the sacrificial substitute of Jesus, then the question remains, who can truthfully, legitimately accuse them? No one. Especially, not Satan, especially not the enemy. So think about your life right now. Whatever accusation or frustration or confusion or, or depression or aggravation or fear, whatever it is that you're dealing with life, whatever is pressing you down right now, whatever has your heart and your mind like it is in some kind of wrench being pressed, remember this, that if you are in Christ, you are justified and that is greater. It's It's greater. I think it's hard for us to think through those sometimes, but, but remember this, it doesn't mean that all those things aren't real, okay? Sometimes we, we talk big religious theological language and we go, oh, it messes up. No, listen, accusations are real and frustrations are real. Confusion is real. Depression is real. Aggravation is real. Fear is real. Stress is real. Anxiety is real. It's all real. But when we look into the truth of what it means to be right with God, what it means to be justified. We would say this, to be right with God, to be justified is the greatest thing in the universe. Therefore, it overpowers everything else in our life. It overpowers every pain, every difficulty, every hardship, every pandemic, every chaotic moment. It even overpowers death itself. First question, answer. So what's the next question? Paul gives us, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? You have the right to remain silent. Anything you can, everything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. <laughs> I messed that up because I've never actually heard those words directed at me. At least not yet. You know, the day's young, we'll see. But... But even if you haven't heard those words directly, 
they're distinctly true. Evidence, witnesses, even things that you say about yourself, your own words can be used against you in a court of law. And in the highest court of the universe, words can be used against you as well. In the highest court of the universe, the question still remains, when you stand before God, what will the evidence show? What you've said in your life, how will that be evidence that you are with Christ or without Christ? Someone has described the the role of a defendant in a court of law as only having two outcomes, either vindication or condemnation. Or put in simpler terms, either guilty or not guilty. So, when you stand before God, what words will you hear? If you're in Christ, nothing can be said against you. If you're in Christ, the the enemy, Satan, your accuser, he can't do anything with his accusations. Why? How is that even possible? Paul said it this way, just a few sentences back at the very beginning of chapter 8. He said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. This might be a little too personal, but, but think for your own life. Who is it that you feel like has always condemned you? Who's always pressed you down? Who always has, has criticized you? Who, who do you feel like you can't do anything right for them. The gospel tells us that in Christ there is no condemnation from the highest judge in the universe. The greater empowers us for the lesser. But how is it possible that there's, there's no condemnation? I mean, how, how could that even be? Paul tells us, look at verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Conspiracy theories are nothing new. The first conspiracy theory was at the very beginning of humanity when Satan said, did God really say that? And there is a smorgasbord of conspiracy theories surrounding the birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. All kind of things out there. But but can I just invite you to consider the gospel? Can I just invite you to, to consider the story of Jesus, to look at, to learn, to evaluate, to consider the accounts about Jesus, because it requires a great deal of religious faith to ignore or reject the historical, biblical, eyewitness accounts about Jesus. And if you ignore or reject those accounts, then today your heart has no hope to have real lasting hope. Your your heart doesn't have the, the capacity as long as you are rejecting. And worse still, if you continue to ignore or reject the accounts of Jesus, to reject the gospel, 
then you will continue to not be justified and to be condemned. I know that sounds like super harsh language, but it's, it's how Jesus spoke. It's, it's how the Bible speaks, and that sentence of condemnation lasts forever. So we would plead with you to repent and turn to Christ. But if you're already a believer, or at least if you profess to be a Christian, then I have just a, a few simple questions to ask you. Questions that are important if there's a pandemic or questions that are important if everything is comfortable and easy. And, and those questions go a little bit like this. Are you going to live your life by conspiracy theories or are you going to live your life by the gospel? Are you going to live your life angry and rebellious about every opinion that's not yours? Or are you going to live by the gospel? Are you going to live in, in fear of everything that's happening or in fear of every accusation that your greatest enemy might hurl at you? Or are you going to live in the reality of the beauty that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Friend, that information changes everything. How are you going to live? How are you going to live? Not how your neighbor is going to live. How are you going to live? How do we know that this condemnation has been taken away? I mean, how do we know it's true? Because Jesus died, and because Jesus is risen, and because Jesus is at the right hand of God. That's how we know it's all true. The accounts help us see the truth. I was reading a story about John Newton, the man who wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton was having a time in his life where he was weak, he was depressed, and he had this weight of guilt pressing him down. And, and he describes a sense of facing Satan facing his greatest accuser, facing his greatest enemy. And he said one thing to Satan. And this is what he said. He said, you know what? Satan, this pandemic, it's, it's caught my attention. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be a better Christian. That's what I'm going to do from now on. No, that's not what he said. What he said was, you know what, Satan? You caught me at a bad time today. I'm, I'm trying to connect the dots of this vaccination conspiracy theory. I, I, but tomorrow, tomorrow, I'm going to do a lot more for Jesus. No, that's not what he said. What he said was, you know what, man, all these church memes and these church live streams, man, man, they've just, they've stirred my gumption. So I'm going to, I'm going to start having more personal Bible studies. That's, that's what I'm going to do. No, that's not what he said. What he said was this, Satan, August 6, 1984, once saved, always saved, get thee behind me. Listen, 
If you're facing the prince of the power of the air, your greatest enemy, your greatest accuser, don't waste your breath with such nonsense. John Newton faced the enemy in his moment of weakness and depression and guilt. And he simply said this, Christ Jesus has died. Dear Christian, that is the only answer we have and it is the greatest answer we could possibly give. Satan, Christ Jesus, has died and he is risen indeed. Now, get thee behind me. It's our hope. It's our hope. After he was crucified, after he was resurrected, after he was ascended into heaven, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God and he is there now and he will be there until he returns to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. And what is he doing at the right hand of God? What's Jesus doing right now while you're streaming? Paul tells us who also intercedes for us. Dear Christian, Jesus is is praying for you. I'll be honest, I I cannot wrap my mind around that. I mean, what does it look like? You know, know, if he's sitting in the chair, I guess he's not kneeling. Is he folding his hands? Is his eyes closed? I mean, I I don't know what it looks like. I just, I know that this promise is throughout Scripture that that Jesus is, is interceding for us. And although I may not be able to understand it, I know it matters, I know it's important, big time in every way to my life and to your life. Why? Robert Murray McShane was a a young and, and faithful Scottish pastor in the 1800s. He was only 29 years old when he died. He said something very powerful about Jesus praying for believers. And before I I tell you what he said, I just want to take a second because of this day uh, and because she's watching to thank thank my mom. Because my mom made sure that every morning, at least almost every morning, before I stepped into the world, she made sure that I heard something about the truth of God's Word. And so mothers are... Mothers-to-be, or or mothers that are praying to be a mother, can I just say that what I'm about to read is one of the most important things you could ever invest in your child. And it's this. This is what McShane said. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus died. Jesus is risen. Jesus is at the right hand of God. And dear Christian, Jesus is praying for you. And because all of that is true, 
There is, therefore, now, no condemnation. No condemnation. No more, no more, no more. That is our hope in Christ.